Thank you, Miss Mariana Smith, for quoting the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Without a help, without any words, in case you couldn't tell, there weren't placards down here or anything such as that. Uh, that was from her mind and her heart with a lot of parental coaching along the way. <clears throat> this morning, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? A leader's initial words and actions, as well as his or her closing or concluding words and actions, are typically of greatest importance. And that was certainly the case in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He began his earthly ministry in, by saying in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called the people, he called the world to repent in his opening um, statement of his public ministry. And then immediately following was the time known as the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This very well-known trifecta of chapters in the book of Matthew was delivered at a specific time to a specific group, and it had a specific purpose. However, that is not to say that there's only been one understanding of the Sermon on the Mount throughout the last two millennia. In fact, there have been any number of understandings about the purpose, what it means, why Jesus gave it, uh, and the like. In fact, we can summarize, if you will, the Sermon on the Mount with the first few verses uh, that Mariana quoted in Matthew chapter 5, known as the Beatitudes. These are qualities. These are high, lofty uh, virtues uh, which Jesus gave, gave and said that those who possess them are, those, are the ones who are blessed. But why did he deliver this as his first lengthy, uh, comprehensive message? That took her 15 minutes to quote it straight through at, at a fairly good pace. When he taught it, it may, it may have lasted an hour as he may have uh, shared various uh, uh, illustrations and anecdotes, possibly, which the Spirit of God did not have Matthew record. And we know that because the end of the Gospel of John, uh, it says, and many other things truly did Jesus say in the presence of his disciples, which are not written uh, in the Word of God. So he said many things. Maybe uh, he had them there for an hour or more spellbound because of the final word in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 and verse uh, 29, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. They were astonished at what he said. Well, why did he say it? Why did he bring the Sermon on the Mount? Something that I've had on my heart and mind for years. I mean, not in a passing way, but actually focused on it uh, many, many times over the, over the past uh, number of years. I've shared uh, my thoughts with a few of you. I shared it with Scott Smith, Scott and Oksana, and Scott let me know that, oh, just, it just so happens that 
Mariana is studying the Sermon on the Mount in her Christian school, and so um, she prepared to uh, be the uh, to set the table for us uh, by sharing uh, the Sermon on the Mount in, from memory. Well, two primary directions that one can go with the Sermon on the Mount on an online ministry that I found, BibleStudyTools.com. And these are orthodox ministries. Uh, this, is not, this is not liberal uh, theology. This is not heresy or not such thing. Uh, but it said, this sermon, Sermon on the Mount, was a revelation through Jesus to his people. It served as a radical wake-up call for Christians to live wholeheartedly for God through faith, not simply through external actions of keeping the law. Our Savior used this passage to teach us how to live with the kingdom of God in mind. That's a good idea. Uh, And to do it from the heart, that's a good idea, no doubt. Our Savior used this passage to teach us how to live with the kingdom of God in mind. The Sermon on the Mount is not simply a list of rules to follow. It is an invitation to live under grace and experience blessings and rewards from living a Christ-like life. Um, In other words... These are lofty virtues to which believers are to ascend. This author says that's the purpose of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I could not disagree more. That is not the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. I also saw another ministry called IBelieve.com, which says the Sermon on the Mount is the backbone to the principles we are called to live by as Christians. Oh, to be sure, every statement in here is a true truism. It is truth. It is orthodox truth. But it is not, and it was not given primarily so that we could uh, uh, reach up high and lay hold of these and pull ourselves up to try to uh, scale that wall of these high moral virtues, of these qualities, these godlike qualities. Uh, Jesus is saying, Reach up and take hold of these. No, that is not the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm convinced anyway. There seems to be this common understanding, but I believe uh, it, uh, it is not correct. Uh, Jesus raised these lofty ideals as qualities not for which the listeners should seek to ascend, but to help them understand that they cannot reach this level. So, I want to share what I'm convinced is the purpose of these three chapters. And at the end, you'll understand why that is uh, especially important. First of all, the premise. What is the premise? What is my premise? What, uh, what is the uh, foundation uh, to why uh, I am uh, holding to this particular position on the Sermon on the Mount? I want to offer to you that the Sermon on the Mount was given not to lift high lofty virtues to which people should then seek to ascend. In other words, the the sermon is not beckoning us to uh, mankind to reach up. It's not beckoning us to reach up. In fact, it is demonstrating that we are, mankind that is, is at the bottom of the barrel. It is not for people to ascend by keeping a list of rules Uh, And to follow that, it is, in fact, to bury mankind in his sin and his depravity. You say, wow, 
That is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? I had no idea. I thought these were lofty goals and and virtues that we are supposed to uh, try to ascend to uh, in order to be more Christ-like. The Sermon on the Mount serves essentially the same purpose. And here's the key. Here's the premise. The Sermon on the Mount serves the same purpose as the law of Moses. The law of Moses in, in, in no way is communicated to help you ascend to godlike status or to even be pleasing to the Lord in your own effort. It is given to bury mankind in their spiritual depravity. And so the Sermon on the Mount and the Law of Moses does not bring life, it brings death. It's the polar opposite of what I'm convinced uh, the majority of folks uh, try to make the Sermon on the Mount to be. It's not to lift up the human race. It's to bury all people who remain in their natural spiritual condition. All people, everywhere, throughout all time, do not measure up to God's ideal standard. For the wages of sin is death. Um, We don't measure up. Uh, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, that's the premise. You say, okay, uh, that is a a weighty premise. Can you prove it? Can you demonstrate it with one verse in the sermon? Chapter 5 and verse 20. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 20, Mariana quoted it. I want to zero in on it. It's near the beginning of the sermon. It's after Jesus is just getting uh, uh, warmed up. He'd already talked to him about the people who are blessed in the Beatitudes. And then in verse 20, he says, For I am saying to you, it's almost like a concluding statement, but then he goes on to expound for another chapter and a half. I'm saying unto you that except unless your righteousness, that is your standing before God, unless it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you are not going to heaven well, folks, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees were unequaled, were unparalleled in their own eyes as well as in the eyes of the people. If you were to ask anyone in first century Jerusalem and, and Galilee and in that area, who are the righteous ones? The masses would point to the Pharisees. They would say, Those are the holy ones. Those are the ones who really have the ear of God. Those are the ones who know the law. Those are the ones who tell us all the time about the law of Moses and how we are violating the law of Moses. And Jesus said that for all of us, unless our standing before God is greater than the standing of the scribes and Pharisees, we do not measure up. But Jesus, they were the epitome of righteousness. These are the religious leaders of our day. And yet Jesus went on to say, just in case any of them were still filled with themselves, in chapter 6, if you'll notice, in chapter 6, in verse 1, take heed. Now, he's giving everyone a warning, but you know he's targeting the religious leaders. Take heed. When you do your alms, when you do your benevolent gifts, Before men, in the presence of men, to be seen by them. You have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when you do them, do not sound a trumpet as the hypocrites. 
um, they have their reward. And he goes on to talk about when you give, uh, when you give an, uh, 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 a benevolent gift, when you give an offering, when you pray. Um, and he, he's targeting the religious leaders. And he said to the people, that's who they are. And your righteousness has to greatly exceed theirs. And so he is causing a, a sense of guilt and condemnation to come upon all who would ever hear him or who would ever read this. Not the aspiration of reaching up higher to try to lay hold of these virtues in our effort. <clears throat> Jesus said, notice at the end of chapter 5, <clears throat> And people have tried to finagle this and work around it. But it says what it says. Verse 48, chapter 5. It's a command. You be perfect. Well, what do you mean? What level of perfection? (laughs) How many levels of perfection are there? How many levels of purity are there? It's either pure or it's not pure. Amen? It's uh, It's either absolutely, completely uncontaminated or it is not. And just so that they knew and didn't make any mistake about it. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father, who is in heaven, is perfect. Now, I just recently checked, just to to make sure that I was on good footing. No pun intended. It's the same word for perfect. It, your Father in heaven is up here. If I can raise to an infinite level, your perfection has to be equal to his. What? You mean I'm to ascend that high? There are those who interpret the Sermon on the Mount that way. It is not given to help you, to motivate you to ascend and to uh, 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 somehow um, lay hold of these virtues. And these are virtues. It's to show mankind the deplorable condition in which he abides and apart from the grace of God there isn't any help so who can measure up only Jesus only Christ is the one and really that is the purpose and the issue of God's law his absolute righteous standards Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 says now we know that whatever things the law saith the ten commandments or the sermon on the mount because it, it, uh, it, it fits very comfortably in that same uh, framework. It saith to them who are under the law, why? So that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You're not blessed because you're not a peacemaker. You're not blessed. You're not one of the blessed ones because you, uh, you don't have a holy heart. He's saying to the masses, it takes a work of God in order for that to come to pass. In this sermon... Jesus raised the law to a heart level. He raised it to not just the actions that the Pharisees had, but he raised it to a heart level. Oh, certainly Moses uh, uh, commanded, and the law is written in the book of Leviticus, uh, thou shalt not uh, commit adultery, Uh, thou shalt not do this, you shall do this. But I'm saying to you, is your heart there as well? And the people must have been in that day saying, No, 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 I am not at that level. No, I am not perfect as God is perfect. Yes, I do sin in my actions and in my attitudes all the time I do. That is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. To the degree that at the very end, 
And I read the last verse, but the next to the last verse of chapter 7, and it came to pass when he'd ended these things, they slapped themselves in the head and they were astonished at this. They came away with the understanding, unless they were just a hard-hearted, arrogant Pharisee, they came away with the understanding, no one can measure up. It's not possible to measure up. If I have to be godlike, not only in my action, but in my innermost being, I am guilty. It's exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. For he had just called them to repent, or there's no heaven. And now he shows them why they need to repent. Because they do not measure up. And keeping the law won't work. For Hebrews 7, 19 says, For the law made no one perfect. Well, be perfect just as God is perfect. Oh, by the way, your actions and your attitudes are going to fail every time. Because the law can't do that for you. It wasn't intended to do that. Folks, the law uh, is a mirror. A mirror does not remove dirt. You don't look at a mirror and take the mirror down off the wall and start rubbing your face with it, right? A a mirror doesn't remove dirt. What does a mirror do? Reveals dirt. And that's the purpose of the law. Romans 7, verses 7 and 9 says, I had not even known what sin was except for the law. The law told me what it was. For without the law... Sin was dead. It wasn't active. It didn't mean anything to me. But when the commandment came, all of a sudden, sin became very much alive. It revived, and I died. I was buried under the weight and the condemnation of the law of God. Jesus basically preached the message and the ministry of Moses in the Sermon on the Mount. Some supporting quotes, and I did find some. I found a number. I found a, a, a lot of quotes of, so I wanted to share those uh, with whom I, uh, I don't agree, but I want to share those with whom I do as well to give you a little bit more of a color and a flavor, uh, different hues and tones and, and all on this. Max Lucado, in his commentary on Romans, after he got done with Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, he said, up until this point in Paul's letter, now this is Romans 1 and 2, all efforts at salvation have been from earth upward we've been trying to ascend man has inflated his balloon with his own hot air and not been able to leave the atmosphere our pleas of ignorance are inexcusable romans 1 20 says our comparisons with others are impermissible chapter 2 and verse 1 our religious merits i.e pharisees or, or, or baptists in our day or whoever whatever stripe is that you have Those are unacceptable. The conclusion is unavoidable. Self-salvation simply does not work. Man has no way to save himself. The Sermon on the Mount is given and was given. When Jesus had the masses there and then the disciples right up front, just as he's getting underway, to say to them, you remember the law of Moses? It was written, but I'm saying what's your heart? You have to be perfect in the eyes of God. And every one of them, unless they're just hard-hearted, stiff-necked, had to have left there with their head low, shaking their head, saying, I do not measure up. I am guilty. I really am guilty before a holy God. John MacArthur wrote, not until 
a person smashes himself against the demands of the law, that is, be perfect, and the accusations of conscience, does he recognize his helplessness and see his need for a Savior? Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned him and sentenced him to death will he be driven in despair to despair in himself and turn to Jesus Christ. In other words, you must be lost before you can be saved. Uh, you must have the, recognize the death sentence that you have before you would ever have any interest in the cure which God offers. Sinclair Ferguson, theologian, commented uh, on, on this. He said, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brought <clears throat> out the real significance of God's commands. It was only in the exposition of Jesus in um, Matthew, 3, Matthew 5, 21 to 48, for example, that the real power of God's law could be felt. Jesus did not weaken the law. On the contrary, he let it out of its cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it. How did the Pharisees imprison it? We're going to make sure uh, you keep every little point, and we're going to add some points to it, and we're going to increase that burden, and we're going to increase that burden. And so Jesus let the law out of its cage so that it could do the work it was supposed to do, allowing it to pounce on our secret thoughts and our motives and tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep it in our own strength. My. Now, I've known this for pushing 46 years, and I've preached it for my entire pastoral ministry uh, uh, over, over 35 years. And just in Mariana reading this, I thought to myself, I don't keep any of that. I'm guilty of every single point in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't even have a thought that I can ascend and lay hold of these virtues and say, aha, I'm going to be blessed because after all, I'm a peacemaker. After all, I, uh, I seek righteousness. After all, on and on and on. No, not in, not in self-effort. Zero, bankrupt. And that's where Jesus wanted them to be. Utterly depraved and admitting it and aware of it. Folks, the Sermon on the Mount is not nice-sounding platitudes that make us feel good about ourselves or feel good about others. First time, uh, I think, uh, the Sermon on the Mount came to my attention. Let me think now. 79, we'll say, 1979. I got saved in 77. And you'll remember uh, Camp David Accord. Jimmy Carter. Hi, I'm Jimmy Carter. No, Lord, really, he's, he's, he's just about ready uh, to, uh, to uh, pass on. He hasn't died yet, has he? He's just, he's right on death's bed. Uh, he's under hospice care, so Lord bless his family and all. And I, I say that genuinely. Jimmy Carter, Menachem Begin, Anwar Sadat, Sadat of Egypt, the, and the uh, uh, prime minister of Israel. And they came to an agreement. And I thank the Lord for that. In fact, Egypt and Israel have not been at one another's throats, I don't think at all, in these 40-some years, 45 years. But at the end, when they signed it, each one put hand, six hands, on top of one another. And one of them quoted, Blessed be the peacemakers, for these are the sons of God. You had a Baptist? You had a Jew, and you had a Muslim. 
And yet, the world was told they are blessed because they are the sons of God. You see how we've misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount? And it continues to be the case. So, what about his commands? What about keeping the infinitely holy and lofty virtues laid out in the Sermon on the Mount? What about doing that? To be sure, in my human effort, I cannot keep it. Never could, never would, never will. However, there is one, and here's the good news. There is one who did keep it, amen? Jesus did keep them, tempted in every way that the law uh, restricted The temptation came against the law of Moses, and he was perfect in every way. So he is my only hope. He is my infinite hope. In him, I'm clothed in the righteousness of, uh, 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 in his righteousness. Therefore, here's the key, folks. Be ye perfect as your father is in, in heaven is perfect. Same word. I have to have that standard. When I am clothed in him, when I am covered by his blood, when his atoning work is credited to my account by by faith, I am viewed as complete. Complete. Colossians 2.10, that's not my word. In him you are complete. You have been made complete. And so righteousness is my label by faith. In the righteous one. And yours too. If you know him. And so you didn't keep the Sermon on the Mount. You never could. But you have received. The merits. Of the only one. Who ever did. And ever could. Now. Lest you fear. And you go away from here thinking. Or somebody tells you online. I've never been tweeted about. This might be the first time. This is not antinomianism. Who knows? What does it mean? What is it? Against the law. I'm not speaking against the law. And Jesus didn't speak against the law. Folks, the law is good and holy and just when it is used lawfully. Romans 7, 12. When it is used correctly. And so this is not antinomianism. It's to view the law in the way it was intended to be viewed. That is to reckon myself as dead spiritually and by faith alive in him so that the righteous merits of the law being fulfilled can be credited to my account. Y'all hearing me? Anybody ever give a grandchild a gift? Any grandparents here but me? Mark, you've actually given a grandchild a gift? I bet you have. Grandchild didn't earn it? Didn't do anything for it? Bo's waving at me right now. Me, me, pick me, pick me. Just because of undeserved favor that grandchild received. Now, that pales into insignificance compared to The favor we received at the cross. For when we were yet sinners, not loving grandchildren, 
sinners, rebels, aliens. Christ died for us. And when I said, yes, Lord, forgive me, save me, no merit on my part, but all your merit, all of your credit, I need applied to my sin debt. MacArthur astutely wrote, as far as the way of salvation is concerned, there are only two religions in the world uh, the world has ever known, or, or will ever know, the religion of divine accomplishment, which is biblical Christianity, that is, Christ accomplished what I couldn't, or the religion of human achievement, which includes all the religions of the world by whatever names they go by. Never cry, I demand justice. You would be foolish if you said that to God. I need mercy. I need mercy from the judge. And the judge cannot just willy-nilly grant mercy because there's a law. The law had to be fulfilled, and it was in Christ. Now, I have just enough time, and this is important. If you would, look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, please. Romans 7. A couple of you have paper Bibles out there. Good for you. You're with me. You're old school. You've heard of being, being KJV only? I'm um, authorized ink on paper only. <laughs> Romans, I, no, I'm fine with you all having an electronic Bible. Romans 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. The law rules over you. And then he gives the illustration of marriage. For the woman who hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. I'm a living illustration of that. I was married to one by the law. I was widowed. I was free to be married. Here, uh, and this text is not a passage on marriage, but it does use that illustration. And it, and it teaches that a lost person is bound to the law as long as the law is active. And the law is perpetually active. And the law is a very cruel spouse. The law is a cruel spouse. To be married to the law every morning uh, as a sinner, you woke up, you were married to the law, and it condemned you, and it left you in isolation. Just once, you longed uh, for the warmth and the affection in your spouse that everything was fine. But that never happened because your spouse, the law, always perpetually accused you not only in action but in attitude. Your spouse continually preached at you. It was a terrible marriage for you because your spouse, the law, knew you better than you knew yourself. How did my spouse know I did that? How did my spouse know I thought that? The law, your spouse, resonated in your conscience all the time. 
you were continually reminded that you failed to measure up. You tried and tried. You passed New Year's Revelation. I want to. I want to be pleasing to my spouse just once. And every day, day in, day out, continually, to no avail. You had to continually admit that your spouse was right in the accusations. Your spouse being the law. You couldn't get away with divorcing your spouse because, after all, you were the only one guilty. Your spouse was actually perfect. Your spouse was actually just. Your spouse was actually holy and true. You were the one who was not worthy. You couldn't hide because every time your spouse, the law, would chase you down and the voice of your spouse, the law, would echo in your soul. The marriage was permanent. You couldn't even kill your spouse because you were infinitely weaker than your spouse, the law. You all following the illustration? You're guilty. You're doomed. What? How can I possibly have a new day when my spouse, the law, says everything right, does everything right, and I'm the only one uh, who does anything wrong, and I do everything wrong? What hope is there for me? Die. Death. You have to die to the righteous demands of your spouse so as to be married to one who will be your righteousness. And so at the point of salvation, you were crucified with Christ and you live by faith unto him um, who alone fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. So you're still, you still look like you But the difference is, you're wearing new clothes, righteous clothes. You possess a new nature, a righteous nature. And so, even though not practically perfect, you're viewed by the judge who oversees the law as acquitted. That is an unbelievable story. The gospel. Well, it's believable because we believed it. Amen? But it seems almost unbelievable. You mean I am guilty of every infraction known to the human race in action or attitude? And because one was not and he was perfect, I can be found in him and have life eternal. Oh, Folks, we've got a story to tell to the nations. Amen? So, the proof of the Sermon on the Mount is to condemn. It's to bring you right to the point of saying, I need mercy. So what? What's the practical aspect then? What am I to do with this understanding of the Sermon on the Mount? The understanding that the law is good and holy and just. And that I am, in my natural state, a sinner, depraved, hell-bound, condemned. But having come to know him, I'm forgiven, and I'm heaven-bound, and I'm a child of God. What am I to do with that? In a word, evangelism. Picture your closest associate at work. 
your buddy uh, on the sports team, and a family member, maybe, maybe a child or grandchild, uh, extended family member, one with whom you have some relationship and with whom you're close. And you can go to that person and challenge in a kind, in a kind heart, in a prayerful way to read through the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Just three chapters. Most people will read three chapters of the Bible if you, if you kindly and politely challenge them to do so. Have that person explain what his or her understanding is of what Jesus was doing and saying uh, uh, and the, the, the purpose he had in sharing this. And if they get it wrong, be patient because all you need to do uh, is go to chapter 5 and verse 20. Your righteousness has to exceed any ones on earth. And by the way, chapter 5 and verse 48, you have to be perfect as God is perfect. Cousin, neighbor, co-worker, are you perfect in the eyes of God? Are you sinlessly perfect? And see, what you've done is you've applied the law, the acts of the law, to the root of depravity, and you have made a huge gouge in that root, and maybe that depraved tree will fall and fall on him in faith, uh, uh, to mix my metaphors. And so the purpose is evangelism. Share with these people in your lives who don't know the Lord, what the purpose uh, of the law is housed in the Sermon on the Mount. So in, in, in a very real sense, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, sermon, uh, uh, the law of Moses uh, emphasize, emphasizes the actions, the to-dos, what not to do. The Sermon on the Mount emphasizes the attitudes behind the actions. Either one leaves a lost person completely guilty and condemned. Uh, I didn't know MacArthur had this position. I'm pleased he does. Our Lord had to begin with a proper presentation of the law so the people would recognize their sin. Then could come the offer of salvation. The Sermon on the Mount clarifies the reasons for the curse and shows that man, man has no righteousness that can survive the scrutiny of God. In other words, it's mercy. He did it for mercy. He, if, uh, if you had a disease and there was a known cure that would work 100% of the time uh, and someone who knew you had this disease and didn't tell you of the cure, my, what kind of callous heart is that? We were diseased. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And he wanted us to know that so that he might then share the cure. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount go far beyond those of Moses in the law, demanding not only righteous actions, but righteous attitudes. Not just that men do right. Young people, children, it's not just obedience. It's what's your hard attitude. But they be right. No part of Scripture more clearly shows man's desperate situation before God. Now that is a... I just noticed this last night. Uh, if he's accurate, and I'm not going to argue, he, he contends there is not any part of Scripture in all the Bible that more clearly, definitively, dogmatically 
shows man's desperate situation than does Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Folks, the Sermon on the Mount was not given to lift high these virtues and qualities so that we might jump. Oh, can I, can I get there? I'm sure trying. Sermon on the Mount is given to say, quit trying and start trusting in him and him alone. <clears throat> I'm not to lift up my arms by self-effort to lofty ideals, but instead fall on him for mercy. I so appreciate and love uh, the, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And when we think about that, uh, we think of the sorrow and, and the loss that Horatio Spafford, the composer, wrote. I think it's the third verse, though, and, and it goes well with this message. He wrote, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, oh, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I've been bearing it, I've been carrying it around for my whole life. But I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Is that your testimony? If you, being here today, or, or watching by way of internet, are trusting in religion, being a church member, trying to be, uh, trying to be good, passing New Year's resolutions, I'm going to be a better husband, a better wife, better child, a better employee, employee or employer, whatever, some self-effort, let the Sermon on the Mount bury that condemn that in your life and by faith say mercy Lord Jesus forgive me save me make me your own I'm receiving you right now Lord would you do this work in the hearts of folks who are here who don't know you may today even today be the day of salvation Lord, that you would touch a life here in the auditorium, around the world by way of internet, and save those who call upon you. Call upon you genuinely, you will. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, would you do that good work even now in this hour. We'll give you thanks for all eternity in your name. Amen.